From the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, this is Human-Centered. Today on Human-Centered, a conversation with former CASBIS fellow and renowned pedagogical theorist and educator Gloria Ladson-Billings. The recipient of numerous honorary degrees, she is the former Kellner Family Distinguished Professor of Urban Education in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the former president of the American Educational Research Association, elected member of the National Academy of Education, elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and in 2021, elected as a corresponding fellow of the British Academy. Interviewing Gloria is 2020-21 CASBIS fellow Naran Davids professor of philosophy in the Department of Education Policy Studies at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. Naran asks Gloria about her time at CASBIS, her journey through academia, her thoughts on the cultural context of teaching and learning, why it's important for teachers to get young African-American students to dream, structural issues within academia that pull African-American women away from knowledge production, and the lasting effects of colonialism on education around the world. Hi, Gloria. Hi, Naran. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Good, good. It's 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 really such an honor for me to meet you. I, I've been engaging with your works for the longest time. So this is really such a privilege. And, and thank you so much for agreeing. Mm. When I saw your name, I thought, oh, I hope she says yes. So I'm really <laughs> thrilled. I'm really thrilled that you have. And um, yeah, so this is this is really good for me. Um, so as you might know, I'm in Cape Town, South Africa. So one of, one of my favorite cities. Oh my gosh! Oh really? <laughs> oh gosh! Okay. So you all, let's hope you can visit some, come and visit soon again. Yes, I think I my last visit was 2018 for the World Education Research Association. Yeah. Okay, so that it wasn't too long. Ago. Not that too was long just ago. All the lockdown happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you should come again. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. So. As you know, um, I've, so I've got a few questions. Um, it probably is going to take us through your CASPIS kind of time and journey. Sure. And then I want to focus a lot more on, on just your work, because I think that for me is the important bit. But I wanted to ask you, um, now that we're seven years later, and if you think back to that time, what are the things that kind of stand out for you at this point? Um, why would you tell any sort of, why would you tell scholars to possibly pursue a fellowship at CASPIS? So I think one of the wonderful things about the CASPIS fellowship is that it provided enough structure for you to continue to work. I think sometimes if we get, you know, somebody just sends you the money, but you're at home, uh, you keep doing stuff you've been doing. And I will never forget that our first, I believe it's the Sunday before the official start, uh, the then director, Doug McAdams, said to us, um, number one, this is the place that you thought the academy was going to be like <laughs> before you actually started working. And secondly, he said, if you're going to do exactly what you were doing at your home institution, you may as well go home. So there was this whole sense of, 
you know, this is an academic holiday uh, from the standpoint of, you know, let's not worry about committee meetings. Let's not worry about, you know, teaching and 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 uh, preparing lectures. Let's think. Let's interact with people who you normally wouldn't interact with. And I I took full advantage of that. It's so interesting because we we often talk about this 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 person called an academic citizen and 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 what you've just said to me just actually alerted me to that in terms of what do we understand by that because we certainly have ideas about what academic work entails but of course once we're in an academic environment it's so seldom is that do you find that's also the case with you I mean you've had a a, a really good long tenure do you do um, yeah, case. I mean, I think there were lots of things. I mean, there were service commitments that were very tangential to my work. I think of things like, you know, finally being talked into becoming department chair. I really didn't want to do it. Uh, in my place, it's 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 not a specific honor. We don't hire a chair. We vote a chair from the the. Um, existing faculty. And every time I was asked to be it, I had another excuse. Oh, no, I can't do that. I'm editing this journal. Oh, no, because I, I really didn't want to do it um, because I didn't want to be bothered with all of the sort of personnel issues that come with that. I served seven years as a member of our athletic department. I don't write on athletics. I don't I don't research athletics. And that's probably, you know, in a, in a U.S. institution, athletics is a very big deal. It, it's earning the university a lot of money. And uh, for 17 and 18-year-olds, athletics is often the face of the university. I mean, sometimes the first time someone hears of a university, it's because they've turned on the television on Saturday and they see a football team or they see cheerleaders and they're like, oh, maybe I want to go. So it, it's a big deal in the scheme of things, but it was not remotely related to um, the kind of work that I do. And the other thing, of course, for me, certainly, although I wasn't able to get to Caspers physically because of COVID, was the, this, this, this virtualness of collegiality. Um. And I think it's, there's, there's so much being written on the erosion or what's called academic disengagement of academics just not being able to find a collegial kind of flow. Did you find that within CASPIS? Was it very different to your work environment? So I had a uh, kind of hidden advantage. I was going back to a community that I had lived in for a very long time. I was a graduate student at Stanford. I had done my research in the Bay Area. I had friends uh, and even family in the area. So it was really uh, perfect for me um, to be able to go down on the campus and, and check in with colleagues that I knew, you know, people who had fostered my career. Um, I actually started attending the same church that I used to attend. I mean, I literally, I didn't even have to make dinner because I had enough friends and family that almost every night I was like, you want to go out for dinner? Or someone would call and say, come on, come have dinner with us. So 
I mean, had Caspers, had it been UCLA, maybe it'd been a different environment for me because uh, I don't know Southern California as well, but it was perfect. I mean, uh, something as simple as going to the Stanford Shopping Center and finding out that my sales associate still works there. Uh, you know, it, it was there. I, I just, I, it was perfect for me. Sounds like a bit of coming home for you, doesn't yes, it? Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was really like the social director of my cohort. I was always coming up with fun stuff to do. And I took probably half of the class to a baseball game because see that 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 uh, back then it was I think it was Pac Pac Bell Park they change it every week but uh, it was when Barry Bonds was still there and the guy would be out there in the bay with the net catching the home runs and so one day I said look we're going to the baseball game we're going on this day let's meet at the California station and we all went to the to the baseball game we had a great time. But I also planned the Super Bowl party. I mean, it's like you got to do these, quote, American things while you're here. We had a um, we had an Arnold Fest because you have to remember that was when the uh, recall came. And it's right before Thanksgiving. uh, We showed pumping iron that night. so that people could see Arnold Schwarzenegger and another scholar, philosopher, also from Germany, from Heidelberg. She was so upset after seeing this film. And she says, Glory, you know, we have to let the people know. I said, listen, not only do they know, they know in your country. I said, said, trust me, they all know about this dude. And then it turns out that he won, you know. Uh, but yeah, we had we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. I had the great pleasure of meeting James Banks. His daughter Patricia was a fellow here a couple of years ago. Yes. And he he came to visit her. He's such a a, a, a gentleman scholar. And also this year, uh, Terry McCarty is a fellow mm-hmm. here. Yeah, uh, Terry sent me a note to tell me I think she's in my my suite. That's right. <laughs> and James Banks was in yours. So yes. um, what can you what can you say about James Banks? Because he, he was such a sweetheart of a man to meet. So when people say James Banks, they think of this sort of erudite, you know, uh, wise, uh, well-published scholar, which he is. But I've known Jim for 40 years uh, I was also a graduate student at the University of Washington in 1970 when he was an assistant professor. And I have people who can't even imagine James Banks as an assistant. And I think he sort of sprang out <laughs> fully, you know, hatched as a full professor. Uh, but Jim has, he has an incredible sense of humor. He doesn't always reveal it because I think he has a persona uh, but you said he he was there. Uh, you had him interviewing with Patricia. He has two daughters, Patricia, who is a sociologist, and Angela, who was a legal scholar at Arizona State. I remember these these uh, young women as little girls. And I remember as they were entering their teenage years, um, Jim and his wife, Cherry, had an extra car that was kind of going to be the car that they would learn on and be permitted to drive. 
And it was one of those boxy Volvos, I think maybe a 246 or 264. I forget the the, the numbering. Uh, and they hated it because, you know, it wasn't cool. And they complained that, you know, why, why do you have us driving this nerd car? And Jim's response was, your mother's a nerd. I'm a nerd. You're in a nerd family. So you have to drive a nerd car. And I thought, well, that's the funniest, you know. Uh, so yeah, Jim is a, he is a, he is a wicked sense of humor that that again, he doesn't always reveal because he's always seemingly so serious. But uh, you know, one of my oldest and dearest friends. Um I often refer to our relationship as that of uh Tony and Camilla uh Soprano. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> You're always asking me to do something. You know I don't want to do it, but then you know I'm going. In the end, I'm going to do it. You know. So. Okay. So, looking back, is there something you would have liked to have changed, or if you were to go back now, if you were to be asked to come and spend some time there, is there something you would have you would hope to see that's different? Um, hard to say. I mean, one of the challenges, of course, is that you have just a couple of people in your your discipline or field. Uh, for me, it was Jeff Sachs from UC Berkeley. Um, everybody else was in a different social science field. So, um, but it turned out that that was perfect for pushing my thinking because I had to get out of that bubble. Um, I would probably find it a, a little more difficult because many of the people who um, were at Stanford 18 years ago um, have moved on, you know. Um, so unfortunately, some of them have passed on. I, I remember inviting uh, Professor Elliot Eisner, uh, who's a curriculum theorist, up to have lunch with me one day because I wanted him to meet um a, another scholar who from Harvard. And so we had a delightful dinner. Well, Elliot has passed on. So a lot of things have changed and uh, some other people have retired. Um, so it might be like starting from scratch uh, if I were to go back. There's something that I've picked up in your writing and it's probably because, or maybe it's more profound in your groundbreaking book called The Dream Keepers. Um, it, it struck a chord with me, um, this idea of dreaming and hoping and, and, and just instilling a belief in, in those that you teach. And then when I kind of read up on some more things from you, I, I, I found that you're, you're unprepared or you weren't really planning to give an exit speech when you finished your tenure at your university um, of um, Madison, Wisconsin. And again, you brought up this word dreaming in public. And I thought, well, that's interesting. From 1994 to 2018, she's still holding on to this dream. And I want you to know from you, what does this mean for you? Is there something, I mean, I get it in terms of the writing, but there must be a deeper metaphoric or uh, symbolic understanding, or is it a spiritual understanding that you have with it? What is it for you? Well, I think it's very, uh, metaphorical for the black experience in the, in the US um, 
when you have a scarcity of resources, when you were at one point legally cut off from certain things, then you dream. You know, you, you, your hopes are get embodied in the dreams. And I think I've pulled on a number of people, everybody from Harriet Tubman to Martin Luther King um, to uh, a, a pedagogue named Septima Clark, who've invoked that sort of dream language. And of course, the, the term dream keepers is from poet Langston Hughes, who asked the question, what happens to a dream deferred? In other words, if you can't realize that dream, what what is it? What what, what becomes of it? Um, you know, I've been to South Africa three times, um, and I think one of the first places that I went um, was fairly rural. I went to um, the Free State, so you know, not Johannesburg, not Pretoria, not Cape Town, not Durban, not where everybody knows all this bustling and and you know there's something about city life that's the same worldwide i've been to a lot of cities and it's like the only thing different might be the language or the only thing different might be the way people look but there's traffic there's skyscrapers but to go to the free state and then from and you know i was based in bloemfontein uh but to go from bloemfontein out to the township of kwakwa it was like, oh my gosh, this is so similar to what my own parents grew up with in the American South. And so you can see the sort of dreams that they had that took them, because you know, my, my host at uh, the Free State kept telling me as we were out there in Kwakwa, oh, you've never seen anything like this before. I said, listen, you don't know. I've seen everything, including chickens running in the street. Yes, I've seen this before. This is not new to me. Um, but it was, you know, it, it was so, I mean, there's, there's a kind of convergence of experiences that allowed me to feel so comfortable. And so you have to ask yourself, well, where, where did this come from? Well, probably it's 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 sort of in, in one's dream life. What would it be like to be able to move from perhaps the lowest rung of society to the, you know, what might be considered the highest? You know, I, I often will say in a, a public talk that, you know, as bad as things might be, I have to take the long view. And so I am four generations from chattel slavery. My great grandparents were more born in slavery. My grandparents were sharecroppers, which is, you know, the equivalent of, you know, tenant farming. You, you don't own the property, you just work it. And, and, and the system is set up in a way that you can never get ahead. At the end of the year, when you go to settle up, the owner says, oh, you still owe this. You know, you owe for seed, you owe for uh, farm equipment. My own parents were a part of our form of legal apartheid, state-sponsored segregation, where my mother could not try a hat on in a department store, where we couldn't buy property in certain areas. So then for me to be an endowed chair, to be president of national organizations, um, the, this summer I was named a fellow 
to the British Academy. I mean, think about that, 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 that road that I've traveled. And it's really all about the dreams that I had as a little girl. Um, Do you find it's easy for you to, to translate that dream to others? I, um, I think w when I share with people what the, what the road has been, um, when I explain to them that, you know, I wasn't special. You know, I think people want to think, oh, you were the one that stood out. No, I wasn't. Um, you know, the combination of opportunity and um, uh, a kind of luck, and I, I don't like to use the term luck, uh, but 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 the, all of the uh, aspects kind of lined up correctly for me uh, is in some ways serendipitous that I might get selected. You know, what, if you look at my early schooling, I skipped a grade and people say, oh, well, you must've been smart from the beginning. I said, no, I just happened to be born in that baby boomer generation. And there were so many of us that when they brought two additional students to my class and the teacher said, listen, this is just too many kids. The principal said, well, pick two that you think might be able to succeed at the next level. And she picked me and another girl. I'll never forget this. I was in second grade, Barbara Jean Hampton. That was that girl's name. I have no idea. I have no idea what her life turned out to be. But the two of us were moved on from the second to the third grade. I don't think we were just, I don't think we were exceptionally smart. We were in the right place at the right time. And the teacher thought, well, you know, they might have a chance. Yeah, but that. Maybe you're being a bit too modest. I mean, clearly this. No, and the reason this, that I don't they, think I'm being. There has to be something. There I has don't to think be, that I'm it, being modest, Naran. I think it's because, um, because, and the reason I don't think I'm being modest is I can remember smarter people in my class. Here's what was different. And this is unfortunately um, borne out by the sociological literature. I was clean. My hair was combed. You know, my parents, I had both parents, you know, even though they were working class. So those factors that the external world looks at um, were working in my favor. Right. So you had the family structure, which somehow facilitated an, an easier pathway. Yes. And of course, that's the big issue, isn't it? I mean, yes. even in South Africa, we have an incredibly high incidence of child-headed homes. We have an incredibly high incidence of homes where there's only a mother figure and no father figure. Mm -hmm. and, 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 we, and, and we do see that as a really key, key role player in the slow eradication of the family unit. And, and so, yeah, I mean, that's a really powerful point there. Yeah, and, and, and those, and I'm convinced that having um, what we call a, a single parent household is not the issue. I think the issue is, not having enough adults, because even in a middle-class household with two parents, it is very difficult to raise children. It just is. The, the, young, the children and young people who are successful have several layers of adults. So, you know, where I live in Madison, most of the youngsters are white, they're middle-class, but it's not just their parents, it's the soccer coach. It's the art teacher. It's the violin teacher. 
it's being in the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts. It's the the church choir. I mean, you, every layer that you go out, there are some more caring adults around these kids. And so the kids who have enough adults around them, what I find is the, the struggle, and I think COVID really underscored this, was the degree to which some children are in isolation. They don't have anybody around them. They, they've got a parent who's working hard, who essentially said throughout COVID, don't leave the house. You know, I'm going to work. Don't open the door. Don't go outside. But, I, yeah, I mean, and I suppose COVID exacerbated it, but I think we, we're already sitting with a cohort of young people who, other than a screen, really are not actually socialising, are not speaking to anybody. And that shows. So coming to how we teach these young people, I mean, you have a particular coining of what you refer to as culturally relevant teaching. And, and you have identified three aspects of, of what that constitutes. Um, and of course, there's criticism about what we understand by, by academic success and, 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 and the cultural factors which come into that. Um, but you also made a comment in, I think it was an interview with the 74, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can recall that. Sorry, Gloria, I'm maybe taking you back to things you might not necessarily remember. <laughs> but you, 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 you said something which I found was interesting, um, where you said it's, that you haven't changed on your position on what you understand as culturally relevant teaching, but that people misinterpret you, right? And, and I wanted you to just tell me about that. Why? Is it really a case of people misinterpreting you? Or is it a case of people not reading? Or is it a case of people not reading at all? Or is it a case of, because it's you saying it, we're not, we're not reading? You know, so it, it could be some combination of all of those things. What, what I, you know, when I do professional development with teachers and I don't expect them to go pick up an academic journal to, to read about any of this stuff, I try to give them the image of an equilateral triangle. Pretty simple. Anybody knows the most rudimentary notions of uh, geometry know that an equilateral triangle is equal sides, equal angles. If you take any part away, you no longer have the triangle. And I have those, the, the vertices of those that triangle, the academic achievement, or more specifically, student learning. And I do try to point out that uh, the reason that I modify it by saying student learning is because when you say academic achievement, people immediately default to test scores. And we know that our young people learn a lot more than we could ever test. You know, you will have youngsters who will learn some work habits that, that don't get tested, right? But that now they know how to organize their uh, information and study more efficiently. Or um, I try to point out, you may have a youngster who shows up three reading levels behind and through a lot of diligent work uh, a teacher may get them, may move them two years in one year. Fabulous, but they're still behind. I want to give that teacher credit for having worked with this youngster and moving them two years in the space of one year. Then external test is not going to give her that credit. They're going to, the external test is going to say, yes, he he's now at the fourth grade level, but this is the fifth grade. What the external test will not notice that he came in at the second grade level, right? So this 
for me, student learning is a much broader category. The other component is cultural competence, which I say is the most misunderstood because I think people believe that to be, oh, well, you know, we have a list of do's and don'ts with this group of kids. Uh, and I'm suggesting no, it is allowing kids to bring their whole selves into a classroom, that their language, that their customs, that their traditions are not denigrated, while at the same moment, you are exposing them and helping them become more facile and fluent in another culture. Now, typically, if you are in that minoritized culture, the culture that you're becoming more fluent in is the so-called mainstream. But it doesn't let the majority people uh, students off the hook. They too need to develop a cultural competence. They need to be able to um, interact with the larger world, not just people that are just like them. Uh, I I have some family members um, who raise their kids in Zimbabwe. And uh, because the the wife is married to a native Zimbabwean and right after the revolution, they went back to Zimbabwe from the U.S. because he was an engineer and he needed to help. Uh, and then, of course, you know, things deteriorated. So the kids, because they have dual citizenship, uh, came back to the U.S. for college. And I'll never forget my niece said to me, Auntie. There are things when growing up in Zimbabwe that I thought were just Hosa. When I saw people do this, you know, in Zimbabwe, oh, that's what Hosa do. She said, but I got here in the U.S. And these, and I saw people who didn't have anything to do with Zimbabwe. But the way they were functioning and acting and performing, I was like, oh, my God, that's Hosa. Right. And so we got into this conversation of, of how cultural continuity, you know, will transcend time and space. And so it's it's that understanding of the uh, deep um, recesses of our, our minds, our spirits, our bodies that hold our culture with us. And that people are not performing cultural practices to be oppositional, it's it's important to them. So that cultural competence, I think, is very misunderstood. And it's misunderstood, I think, because the majority culture teachers, which are 70 plus percent of the teachers uh, in the U.S., don't think they have a culture. They think culture is always about the other. And so a big part of the work is understanding, no, you have a culture, you have a, a language system, you have a value system, you have an ethical system, you think it's just the right way to do things, but it is culturally grounded. So that's probably the heaviest lift that I have in the preparation of teachers to get them to do uh, probably what Foucault would call the archaeology of the self, to look inside and say, well, why do I think that way? Why do I do that? Then that third component is the most ignored. And that is the sociopolitical or the critical consciousness. Uh, when I work with high school kids, I call this the so what factor. In other words, you teach them something and they go, well, yeah, now I know this, so what? You know, <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? Um, and I was, I used to be a history teacher, so you know I got a lot of so what, because everything I was teaching happened a long time ago. Uh, but I might teach something like the War of 1812 in the US. 
And students will say, well, so what? Yeah, now we know. But today I'd say, okay, the last time the U.S. Capitol was under attack was in 1812. Now, let's fast forward to January 6th. What is going on? What are the similarities? What are the differences? What's the symbolism here? You know, so having, for me, the, the idea of the critical consciousness is not about the teacher taking his or her agenda to kids saying, yeah, let's work on um, saving the rainforest, which I see a lot of when I go in school and I ask kids about it and they go, I don't know what this rainforest is. It's just something she wants to do. No, that critical consciousness is about what are the problems that kids are coping with? And how do the skills and the knowledge that we teach in schools help them solve their problems? And their problems may seem tri trivial to you, but once they dig, once they realize that school has some purpose for helping them solve everyday problems, then they will be more likely to be engaged. How do we get this culturally critically conscious teacher into the classroom? Because clearly the, the kinds of challenges you're describing, I mean, it's the it's same here. Our teachers think my job is to teach a subject. As long as I know my subject specialization, as long as I have my schedules, I have my assessments, I'm sorted. What needs to happen in teacher education training to get teachers to understand that the task is so much bigger and so much deeper? Uh, fabulous question. And I think the challenge that we are facing is number one, people do believe they're teaching a subject. They don't understand they're teaching a human being. <laughs> they're teaching a school subject to a human being. Um, and I also think um, you have a lot of folks who enter teaching who come in believing that the current order of things is just fine and that their job is to sort and select those who can fit into that order. And those who can't, well, just too bad. You know, that's what we have McDonald's jobs for. That's what we have custodial jobs for. Um, it goes back to me being selected in second grade. There was something that that teacher said, oh, well, she probably can make it in the way that, you know, after all, her hair is combed. After all, she's clean. She's already set up to get, you know, probably some low-level clerical job. You know, you know, she could probably do a white-collar job. She won't have to clean toilets. Um, but it's accepting of that, you know, what I would call the pyramid, you know, and that people think, oh, well, they're doing a good job if they can move some of the non-white or non-middle-class kids up the pyramid. That's very different from teachers who have the orientation that says the pyramid is wrong. And my job is not to integrate the pyramid. My job is to help develop those young people who will destroy that particular structure as the way to think about um, the, the, the social order, that the social order has to become more democratic. So I've got to raise the kind of questions. I've got to challenge orthodoxy. So we're really talking about um, sort of a worldview 
that has to be in, in place before people can do this. And I think where culturally relevant pedagogy falls flat uh, in practice is that we're not dealing with the fact that people don't fundamentally believe certain things. They don't fundamentally believe that some kids can learn. They, I mean, really, if you push them hard enough, they'll just say, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be doing um, good to get these kids to, uh, you know, take a job with the state, uh, you know, perhaps uh, being a clerk. I mean, that that that's their worldview, and I and I I'll just say to you, while I was in the Kwakwa Township, I got to visit a community-based school that some grandmothers have put together for kids with obvious special needs. And they said to me, they said, listen, the, the school system doesn't accommodate these kids. They stay home all day, every day. They have nothing to do but get older. They will always be dependent. And we just decided they, they ought to be able to do something. And we don't know if we're doing the right thing, but we're just doing it anyway. And, you know, they talked about, you know, we took them to the beach, not because we wanted to just have fun on the beach. They, they'd never seen the ocean. So, and it, I mean, talk about bringing tears to one's eyes. Here's a community realizing even kids with some severe limitations, someone can quote dream and have a vision for them beyond what the society is saying. And so it's that kind of person that is capable of implementing a culturally relevant uh, approach to teaching. I mean, what you're saying is just so powerful, but of course, and it's it's so true as an opposite effect as well, isn't it? Because somebody saw you, saw something in you, you use your words, you were clean, and, and so you probably get to, you, you were set up. And by the same token, sometimes teachers look at kids and go, well, this kid's not clean. This kid doesn't have the, the family structure. He's going to amount to nothing. So let me treat him as such. So that myth can kind of become either kind of aspirational or destructive, right. you know, in, in terms of how we perceive people. Right. And that's so powerful. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's really something I think that I think sits at the heart of pedagogy, this idea that you have to believe in those you teach. You have to be able to see something for them, you know, regardless of circumstances. I mean, that's... Just, Right. I mean, it's like, who who do you see? And I say this to teachers, when you look out in that classroom, who do you see? Uh, one of my teachers in my study used to, she would say in a classroom somewhere, my doctor's in here somewhere. And so I need to make sure that my doctor is learning X, Y, and Z. My lawyer is in it because you know, you know, Miss, um, you know how Miss Lewis is, she going to get in trouble. She going to need a lawyer. One of y'all going to have to fix things for Miss I mean, she would, speak that into them uh and it just was so was amazing now I ended up having a teacher like that in fifth grade who just she she was like sky's the limit I remember distinctly having this conversation with her where she said to me well what makes you think you can't be the best fifth grader in the class and I kind of shrugged my shoulders she said what, what makes you think you can't be the best fifth grader in the school what makes you think you can't be the best fifth grader in the city? I mean, she would just, you know, 
till we got to what makes you can't what, what makes you think you can't be the best fifth grader anywhere? And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, do you, do you see this? <laughs> but what it was saying to me is she was ho- holding me to such a high standard. She was pushing me in ways um, that literally set me up for secondary school because I went to school in my community, which was an all black community. But I went to secondary school in a mostly white community. But I could hear her voice echoing while I was in, in these classrooms with mostly white students saying, well, what makes you think you can't be? Uh, and so, you know, every youngster needs, I, I can't remember who said this, whether this is, you know, somebody like Toni Morrison, I think might've said, every child needs somebody who's, whose face lights up when they enter the room. So on that note, after being um, moved along in grade two and being told to be the star pupil in grade five, you, you end up being the first black woman to become a tenured professor at University of Wisconsin. And I mean, that's in 1995, right? Right, that, in the School of Education, not in the university, but in the School of Ed. Okay. I must tell you, I was kind of thinking, Wow, only 1995. That that was the first thing that went through my head. That was like I thought that was the year after we became a democracy. Yes. And 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 I thought, wow, okay, it's quite interesting. Now, are you finding and 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 I know this came up during my Casper's year as well. Are you finding that it's any easier for black women to become full professors in the US? Um, no. And how can and how another part of the question? How can critical race theory assist us in dealing with this this war? Yeah, this is uh, you know the the point that I became uh, iron tenure in 1995. Uh, it's interesting because I've been in settings at the university, women in philanthropy, alumni settings, and they will announce that. And people will clap. And I always say, don't clap. You should be embarrassed. 1995, the university was founded in 1848. And education was one of the first fields. You know, I'm old, but I'm not that old. I mean, come on. From from 1848 to 1995, it took you that long. That should cause some deep soul searching on the part of the institution um, that, you know, makes you ask what what was going on? What were we doing? Um, And I think that there are Black women everywhere who are having that same struggle. Now, I think, you know, people will say, oh, well, you wrote this book and you got this award and you did this. But if you were to pin me down around the question of legacy, I would say the legacy really resides in the students that I was able to bring along behind me. So in the 27 years that I was at Wisconsin, I have supervised 55 doctoral students. 19 of them are black women. And I don't think that's an accident. Yeah, I don't think that's an accident. I think they came looking for me, um, both, U.S. students, I have a couple students who who are African. Uh, I've got a student from Malawi. I have a student from uh, Botswana. Um, They came looking for me. And the only way that we 
make this an easier task is that folks who end up in positions like mine have to really nurture that next generation. Uh, they have to really look to, to do that for another generation of, of, um, of women, Black women. How do we begin to address the fact that so few Black women are sitting in the academy? How do we, I mean, it's fine, it's fine for you as an individual to be doing X, Y, and Z, but how do you provide a counter-narrative to the institution so that it becomes a more hospitable environment? Yeah, well, there, I think, are a confluence of factors that send folks on a different track. Um, I clearly took a pay cut to go into the academy. I'd been a teacher in a, in a public school system. I could have retired years ago had I stayed in the public schools and been fairly comfortable, you know, because here the school systems have bargaining units and I would have been getting raises and what have you. What typically happens to Black women, and I would say to Black academics in general, is they get waylaid. They get moved away from the knowledge production aspect, that is being a professor, researching and writing, and get drawn into administration. Oh, you should be the dean. You should be the associate dean. Oh, you should be director of diversity. Now, all of those roles are important, but those roles are not producing more knowledge. They're not you know, nobody comes to a, a university because so-and-so is the dean or so-and-so is the uh, director of diversity and equity. They, they don't. They come because a scholar I've been reading is there. So, and, it, and sometimes it's hard to convince people to stay on the scholarly track because it doesn't pay as well, let's face it. And you know, I, I remember talking to a scholar at uh, Rutgers University, Brittany Cooper, who has done fabulous work on Black feminism. And Brittany is a single woman. And she says, you know, people think because I'm a single woman, tenured professor, that I have all kinds of money. She says, what they don't understand is how many people I'm literally feeding off of this paycheck that I have family members who can't get a job. I have family members who are incarcerated. So no, I don't have children. No, I don't have a partner, but people are dependent on me in ways that my white counterparts, you know, they get to take their check home and not only spend it for themselves, you know, um, they have a partner who's probably paying the big bills, the mortgages and what. So just our life circumstances are such that we are we are drawn into other fields. I mean, if you literally counted the number of black women who have uh, terminal degrees in education, it that number is pretty good. But very few stay in the academy. They they go back into the uh, PK twelve. Uh. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, I, I'm just so struck by how similar that explanation you've offered is to South African context. We we don't have enough black academics coming in because they say the pay is so bad, mm -hmm. and it's and the corporate world beckons with 
with higher salaries, it's so interesting. Across your rich, rich academic life, what is the argument or the contribution that you would most like us to, to, to know you for and to know you by? Um, well, you know, I, I just have just did a book launch the other night for a compilation of works that I've done on culturally relevant pedagogy. And the subtitle of that book is Asking a Different Question. And I think that's the thing that I hope people will think of, that she's the one that asks the different question. Uh, I came out of Stanford as a graduate student where the question was constantly, what's wrong with these kids? You know, why can't they learn? You know, and so people were searching for answers to that question. And they were coming up with things like, well, their mothers don't speak enough words to them. Oh, they're in a single parent household. Oh, they're poor. Oh, they have some cultural deficiencies. They're from, you know, everybody had a reason to tell you about what was wrong. And I just asked a different question. And my question was, well, what's right with them? What do we know about these kids that's absolutely spot on right? Um, and that, I think, raised the eyebrows of people. I mean, but that, that's a, essentially the fundamental question that undergirds the dream keepers. Like, let's go find out. Let's find some places where, where everything seems to go right, that the teachers get it right, the kids get it right, their families and the community gets it right. Uh, and what does that look like? Any last comments from you in terms of getting it right? What else can we do? Um, not only, I think for me, the biggest issue, again, and I come to you as a South African, how do we, we, we can have all the kind of content aspects lined up, we can have the teacher training lined up, how do we ensure, particularly in a society that is beset by issues of race, how, what do I need to do to make sure my kids have a sense of belonging? How do I create an inclusive class where every kid feels she gets me, she sees me? Well, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I studied anthropology while I was at Stanford. And so culture is something that just totally fascinates me. I started out as someone studying history. And then when I paired it with anthropology, it was a perfect match. I actually took a course on anthropology and history taught by a historian, uh, <laughs> Um, Canel Jackson and an anthropologist, Renato Rosaldo, you know, perfect merging of my interests. Um, and so one of the things that I hope people begin to understand is about this incredible continuity of experience. I, I gave a talk once at the, um, oh gosh, the Comparative and International Education um, Symposium called, and I actually published this as a paper later, called From the South Bronx to Soweto. In that paper, I talked about, it's not different. It's not different, guys. And that the, the, that the similarity is that in both spaces, our Black children are experiencing colonial education. Now, people in the U.S. will go, what do you mean colonial education? It's because the education system is external to the community. The curriculum is 
not about the community. It's about something outside of the community. It has all the elements and colonial educations are designed to do the same thing no matter where they are. Identify a few exceptions, you know, the, the glorious, right? Pull them out because then you can say, no, the system works. But most of the people will stay exactly where they are. They will still struggle. They will they will not be uh, successful. And they'll produce another generation of kids who probably won't be successful. Well, when I finished that talk and it was the question and answer time, everybody from around the world said, you could have said from Bahia to, <laughs> to the, uh, you know, from Melbourne to you. I mean, because everybody had a colonial story to tell. I have not been anywhere in the world where I have not seen the indigenous folks, the minoritized people, always struggling. So that's one thing that I want people to realize that that's a common experience. We're not exceptional here in the U.S. Not at all. We, we see this played out every single place where you have these uh, asymmetric or unequal power relations at play. London, I, you know, it's like when I go to, to, to uh, Brixton, I'm like, oh, gosh, I might as well be in West Philadelphia. You just, you guys just have better access. You know, it's like, <laughs> the batteries, you still, you're struggling in very much the same way we are. So I think the challenge is go, always got to be about trying to um, disrupt the power relations that continue to place people one down, to um, change the knowledge construction um, that the West. The, the Western world is not the only way to uh, organize an epistemology, that there are ways that people have that teach us lots of things. I was in a Twitter chat the other night. We were looking at Maslow's hierarchy, and we were looking at the, the hierarchy needs developed by indigenous, uh, the whole chunk nation here in Wisconsin. And it was just fascinating. I'm, I'm sitting there going, how come we didn't know that? You know, how come that's outside of our repertoire? So I think our big challenge is to, to broaden the, the quote canon, to bring in new experiences and new ideas. Uh, one of my dear academic friends is there in South Africa, Jonathan Jansen, and he, oh, he is okay. the epitome of what we mean by getting into good trouble. Um that you just don't want to get in the institutions. You want to you want to transform the institutions. Well, Jonathan is in my department, and um, I'll 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 close with this bit because, like you, I absolutely did not enjoy being the chair of my department, <laughs> um, and I certainly did not enjoy having Jonathan in the department at the time <laughs> because I think Jonathan just enjoys. Stirring. He just he's a stirring. He likes to stir the pot, yes. Oh, he likes to stir a pot, but wow. Gloria, this has been stunning. It was really good. I I I this is good to talk to you about the, the, the concept of dreaming and, and I'm glad we could touch on the issue of race theory and the issue of race, which just pervades you know education wherever you go. So thank you so much. This has been super. The thank pleasure's you. been mine. Thank you. That was Gloria Ladson-Billings in conversation with Naran Davids. 
If you enjoyed this episode and crave more intellectual conversations, be sure to follow us online or in your podcast app of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Center's people, projects, and rich history, you can visit our website at casbs.stanford.edu. And you can always join the conversation with us on Twitter. We're at Casbis Stanford. Until next time, from everyone at Casbis and the Human Centered team, thanks for listening. <laughs>